0: Hey everyone, welcome to our February exchange essay. We're gonna be talking about navigating burnout tonight. I know I'm pretty excited about this because I'm about two thirds the way through PT school and I feel like I'm already getting a little burnt out. Uh, If you've never joined us for an exchange essay before, how it works, you can follow the conversation here on the Facebook comments. There's also a Twitter conversation going on using the hashtag exchange essay. So join in on both and let's have a fun time. So this is Mike Connors. He's the president of the Texas Physical Therapy Association. So I'm going to let him introduce himself and a little bit of his background.
1: Thank you very much for the opportunity to be with you all tonight. This is really cool. Um, I'm Mike. Um, I've been a PT since, uh, goodness, uh, 2003, so about 15 years. Now I'm in mid-career. Uh, it's a little bit of an adjustment when people start calling you mid-career. You, know, you go from new <laughs> professional, you're out there for a while. And they're like, mid-career, like, wait a minute, that's like middle age, right? Um, <laughs> so, I, uh, my MPT was from Rutgers. Um, my transitional DPT I did in 08 from Temple. Um, just finished a PhD from Texas Women's University in 17. Um, NPT, um, applied biomechanics. Um, I did my, um, I was certified as uh, OCS in 2011. Yeah, something like that. Um, and then in my second term as Texas chapter president.
0: So you have a little bit of alphabet soup going on after your name.
1: (laughs) You know what, I I do, but it's PT. And I try (laughs) to like, anytime it's Mike and it's PT, it's, you know, I don't like the alphabet soup, I just
0: keep (laughs) having fun. (laughs) So let's just start out, what is burnout?
1: It's a great question. Um, So I look at burnout a couple different ways. I think most of us get into PT because we are excited about the possibility of helping people, Um, and so we have a passion and drive, and I think it's that loss of passion and drive. It's the, um, I don't want to do this anymore, Uh, the realization that you're not getting um, the same satisfaction uh, tomorrow that you did yesterday in in your day-to-day work, and that you know, the idea of going into work instead of being exciting and um, something you look forward to every morning, you have to drag your carcass up out of bed, <laughs> you know, throw, throw clothes on and be like, man, just let me get through one more day. And, um, you know, I think it's just that all those elements of, of just not really understanding um, why you're doing what you're doing and, and not being able to have a clear vision that I can do this for the next 30 plus years of my life.
0: Yeah, I know it's like tough because I've heard a couple of people that I've talked to that are newer PTs and they're already experiencing it like a couple years out of PT school. So what are some of the signs that someone's starting to experience burnout?
1: So I think some of what I talked about, I think it's that, um, you know, lack of enthusiasm about the profession. Um, I think it's the feeling of just being constantly overwhelmed and underwater. Um, You know, as a student, you know that all too well (laughs) when you start anatomy, um, you know, just becoming disinterested. I don't think it's um, all that uncommon to become maybe anxious or depressed um, and experience those um, anxiety about, you know, I just spent seven years and um, almost $100,000 to become a trained professional. And now I I don't want to do this anymore. I'm depressed because you just spent a hundred thousand dollars you you know um, and I think just really that you know I, I can't believe I have to get up tomorrow you know perfect example, it's Sunday tomorrow's Monday um, I'm really excited about getting up for work tomorrow, but I couldn't imagine if if I was burnt out because then it would be like, man I, I can't believe I have to start another week of work
0: yeah, and that's funny because we actually have a question from Alex that's how do you distinguish being burnt out between the difference between being burnt out and just anxiety and depression in general, I think they might kind of go hand in hand, but do you see a difference between the two?
1: You know, I do. Um, I think, um, you know, anxiety and depression is, is are serious medical conditions. And, um, now we have a lot of um, patients and colleagues that, that are, are dealing with various forms of anxiety and depression. So I think you almost have to look at those as standalone conditions. Um, and, and by no means do I mean to lump burnout in that together <laughs> um, no, th- th- that's not what I'm getting at, but it's it's really that um like I said you you get anxious or you get um to the point where you're just loss of hope because you've done all of this training and all of this development and now you're there and you're like now what
0: yeah because I know. <laughs> I've seen people kind of do doing both. They they start to get burnout, and then they get depressed because they're burnt out, and they don't know what to do. Uh, so, as either fresh BTS or students, like, what are some strategies people can use to avoid burnout?
1: Another great question. Um, I think you have to recognize the signs. Number one, um, because I think there's a difference between feeling overwhelmed and feeling burnout. And I don't think they're all that far apart. You know, it's like standing on one side of the street, crossing the street, being on the other side. Um, It could be a really short distance between the two. Um, But um, I think recognizing those signs, and then, like I said in my blog post, it's really just finding out what drives you, Um, what excites you about our profession, you know, like something was lit inside each one of us to go to PT school. You don't just wake up one day and be like, I want to go to school for seven years and I want to have a hundred grand in debt. And I want to, you know, yell that by physicians. And you know, like (laughs) you don't wake up and say that, but you have something that makes you excited about wanting to go to PT school, about wanting to help patients in the way that we do and clients. I think that's the, that's the, the end game. That's what you have to constantly keep in mind. Um, and then all of the, I call it noise, but the variables that limit your ability to stay in that frame of mind, I think those are, are what the challenges, um, whether that is high productivity expectations, um, you know, a, a job that's not, um, your ideal, you know, whatever that variable in your way is, but, um, really just keeping in mind why i why I chose to do this and, and what makes me excited about this profession.
0: And, uh, do you think like maybe like writing down that why when you started PT school or just going back to that could maybe help a few people?
1: Absolutely. So when I started PT school, I knew I was going to be and t- back then. It was a two year master's. Um, I had a sticky note that I wrote, like, you know, keep the end in mind. Um, and I put that on my bathroom mirror every day. So no matter how bad a practical was, i um, how much I hated what I was having to learn, um, how much I felt even burnout then or overwhelmed. Um, waking up every morning and just saying, keeping the end in mind was, was enough to be like, okay, I, I know why I want to do this. And you know, sitting down, even in those points of where you're like, I, I don't want to do this anymore. Like I'm truly at that point, um, hopefully before then, but just reminding yourself constantly like it's worth the, the prize in the end.
0: It's that classic either dry erase marker or sticky note on the mirror every day, like, you're great. You got this. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you're great. You're wonderful. Everybody loves you. Yeah, that kind of thing.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. I know for me personally, my passion for PT really came when I first went to a conference. Um and CSM is coming up in just ten days and I'm so stoked <laughs> because you get to see your PT fam and that passion gets relit. Um How do you see different involvement opportunities kind of to helping people avoid burnout?
1: So I think it's your network. Um, I think that's the most important. You know, you you become a product of who you surround yourself with, right? When we're kids, if we have friends that, you know, have similar values to us, we tend not to get in trouble as much. (laughs) I think that translates, well, as much, um, translates (laughs) into you're now a a new professional, fresh PT. You know, who you choose to surround yourself with is going to largely influence your practice, it's gonna influence your attitude towards you know the profession, towards you know your view of what you do, so I think if you can surround yourself with the people that have like minds or that value what they do as much as you do, and then I think networking. Um, one of the things I feel like I've done pretty well over the last 15 years is network. I constantly do it, I get energized to conferences, I probably go to five a year on average. And I get as excited
0: just like me. <laughs>
1: exactly. And even at 15 years, I still get as excited about CSM as as you just described.
0: <laughs> that makes me excited that I'll still be excited in 15 years as I am right now. <laughs> <laughs> just keep at it. Ooh, we have a good question. This came in from Ron and it says, do you think that feeling burnt out is inevitable at some point in our careers?
1: Yes, I do. I think you're gonna hit a point, um, and as I even said, honestly, in my blog piece, um, so I started my career um, in inpatient rehab, which I never thought I would be. Um, I um, worked there for an entire year. It was a great teaching environment, teaching hospital, um, so I learned a lot in a very short period of time, but um, the focus in that year went from like general um, rehab diagnoses to an emphasis on neuro-oncology. Um, Wow. You know, so glioblastoma patients and, and of that nature, um, that takes a very um, significant emotional toll on you. It's hard to leave work at work there. Um, mm-hmm. So nine months into my brand new profession, um, I started thinking about other professions. I was like, well, I have a bachelor's degree in biology. Um, my prereqs are largely covered to go to medical school. Um, I've always thought about that as a backup plan. Um, so started researching pretty seriously that route uh, it was before I was married and had a family. So it, it fit that point in my life um, until a mentor just said, you know, what the hell are you thinking? Um, you know, why do you want to want to leave when you've worked so hard to get here? Um, you know, change environments. And so I went to work in outpatient and then 14 years later, um, you know, living proof that you can near burnout Um, recognize the signs, um, get some really, really good mentoring and insight and then, you know, get into an environment where you feel like you make a difference and 14 years later you look and you're like, wow, I'm a little grayer, a little bit more knowledgeable and I'm glad I stuck with it.
0: That's crazy. So you almost quit the profession like, you know, a year into it. I think you told me earlier it was 366 days that you lasted an inpatient rehab and now you're the president of the Texas Physical Therapy Association. So I'm glad we didn't lose you. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> so how would you, how did you, or how would you suggest someone else approaches their employer when they feel like they're getting burnt out?
1: Okay. First and foremost, um, your employer is not your enemy. I, I talk to new professionals, and I feel like they they have this perspective that, like, it's the man. And, like, their boss is like this and figuratively speaking, but like this horrible person that, you know, they can't approach. And if that's the case, number one, you shouldn't be in that environment um, unless desperation forces you to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think you need to be open and honest, <laughs> um, open and honest with yourself about the, um, you know, about the situation. And you need to feel comfortable in your professional skin. You need to be able to go to your employer not as a fresh PT, not as a um, as a student, but as a professional and have dialogue and say, this isn't about generational. This isn't about this is about acclimating to an environment and providing the best clinical care possible for the patient that's in front of me. And I think when you approach it that way, you don't make it about, you know, about you. You don't make it about just about you. I mean, Mm -hmm. but you you acknowledge that part of it is is you as the provider part of it is you don't feel like you're giving the A game to the patient and this is why and if a if a manager really cares about you as a professional individual they're going to take some pause and really want to have some dialogue with you about okay maybe we got started on the wrong foot maybe we you know thought that we hired an experienced PT. When we hired a fresh PT, and we need to change the way that we onboard. Or maybe we thought our onboarding was good and here; it sucked for all these years, <laughs> and we have to relook at that. So, I think it's, I think as fresh PTs, a lot of times you just want to please your employer, so you take a lot on, and you get to the point. And I see it on social media all the time, where, where a large number of new professionals are nearing burnout. They're talking about burnout, and you need to be more proactive. So Let's say the first is identify the situation. The second is intervene early, you know, get to the source of the issue. And then if you can't do that, then that's where a great mentor can come in and say, okay, let's talk through this. How can we best um, advise you on how to approach this situation? So you avoid the inevitable possible burnout.
0: I love that. I never thought about it. You know, if you're burnout, you're probably not giving good patient care. And I had never thought about that before because I feel like burnout has been not a selfish thing, but it's very centered on the person that's experiencing burnout. Um, So I really like that perspective that you bring in the patient because I think that's probably more important than how I'm feeling.
1: (laughs) Or as important. I mean, don't negate the way that you're feeling, but I just, you know, if you think about empathy and you think about apathy, it's really, really hard to display high levels of empathy when you're apathetic towards your profession. And, and it's not intentional. It's just you're, you're burnt. You're fried. You're like, I'm, I'm done. I can't do this job at this level, you know, over a prolonged period of time. And it, you just can't. So I, I think at some point, it's almost that old, the, the provider doesn't take care of themselves. Um, mm-hmm. So you have to take care of yourself. You take care of your patients.
0: There's actually a question from Alex that kind of leads right into this. Um, it says, could you explain f- compassion fatigue to our listeners and discuss how it can affect us?
1: Absolutely. That's a great question. Um, great. Com- compassion or empathy fatigue? So I think you do hit a point. Um, so I think about empathy as like um, a, a bottle of water, right? Um, I'm going to get through enough of this to where it's going to be empty and I can choose whether or not I want to refill it or if I just want to be thirsty. Yeah, and I think that's the best analogy for, for empathy fatigue is I can choose to be in this empathetic mode all day long where I'm just give, 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 give. And if I don't do something to help myself recharge or you don't do something to help you recharge, I think it's easy to become fatigued or thirsty, um, you know, and, and that's so I think you need to back to that and take care of yourself. Um, you're only as good for your patients as you are to yourself. So the the more that you can focus on not just your own and, and, and I'm talking general stuff that we all know, um, sleep um, hygiene, um, you know, some sort of outlet that's that's. Um, constructive for stress um, those types of things
0: you just drop a knowledge bums that was so good <laughs> cindy has a question that relates to this as well all of you guys are doing really good relating to your questions to what i'm talking about <laughs> she says as an spt i can see myself becoming an overachieving fresh pt at the expense of mentally and physically burning myself out where would you suggest that line is in terms of truly wanting to help our patients and also having a life outside the clinic
1: It's a really good question because I think the demand you all are facing as for SPTs are definitely different than what I did 15 years ago. Um, So I think you just need to establish your boundaries. Um, You're professional, and you're also – so you need to know what what you're capable of, and you need to to professionally communicate that to your employer. Like, I'm okay with knowing that you're hiring me to work 40 hours, and maybe the expectation is that you're going to treat – or 40 hours and do your documentation in whatever time. So maybe you get it done in that time or, you know, the expectation that you're going to maybe work 45 hours a week to get 40 hours done, whatever that is. Um, and then develop some sort of um, strategy to be as efficient as you can. You know, um, patient care is what we all love. None of nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I can't wait to document when I get to work um, <laughs> It is the bane of my, Personal and professional existence, I know it's an unnecessary evil. <laughs>
0: yeah,
1: just try to get as efficient as you can for conveying what you need to convey without a novel. Um, and then really clearly articulate and set the boundaries and stick to the boundaries what your non-negotiables are. So mine are simple, you know, I need to work out every day. That's my stress relief. If work interferes with that, that's a problem. And then I'm gonna adjust my schedule to be able to fit that in you know, time with family, if that's whatever your, you know, non-deliverables are. This is what I need to stay sane in my life and be able to function at the level I need to function as a provider. And they're not up for negotiation. And then back up everything from that. And then I think if you can maintain, there's no such thing as a work-life balance. Let's face it. We we work so we can live, but you, you need some sort of balance to stay in um, and just to stay um mentally focused for your patients.
0: Yeah, I completely agree with that. And Yusra, I hope I said your name right. Um, she's asking you, what do you do to recharge and do self care? I know you said working out, but what are some other things that you do?
1: No, so that's that? great. Um, you know, I think I have gotten better at just turning it off. Um, so at, at some point in time, I mean, we are all slaves to our devices, we know that. Um, you know, we all, all, if, if, if our iPhones or Samsung droid, Google thing, whatever, um, is away from us. I mean, I I know there's delirium tremors that most of us (laughs) will experience because we'll be like, no, we, I I need to see what's on social media. So I, I try to be very purposeful. Um, I unplug completely when I'm home and when I'm with my family, I have two daughters that are 12 and 10. So, um, that's another, you know, my family is very important to me. So, um, at times in my career where, um, I was asked to sacrifice family time for work. That was my non-negotiable. So, um, you know, you, whatever you need to do, you need, and you need to not let it be disrupted. Like it's you, it's your time and, and everybody needs to be on board. So, you know, I heard a message at, at church today. It's like, whether you're single, married, it's complicated, whatever. Um, Everybody in your life and in your, your work world needs to understand that this is what my routine is. And, and I'm willing, plus or minus a little bit, to, to do what I need to do to help others and to also take care of myself. But um, you have to put the time into taking care of you or like I said, I don't think you're gonna be as effective in taking care of your patients.
0: I completely agree. Um, and I know when I started this position as Director of Communications, I was like so excited and then I was like, wait, I got this position and I, started, I was like, <laughs> oh crap. <laughs> okay, I have to manage the Twitter page the Facebook page we started doing Instagram I'm not super good at remembering to do that one yet but I was like I don't want to be on my phone 24 7 so um, I try to limit to where I get on it in the morning just to get all the notifications off and make sure that everyone's been talked to I check it at lunch during my clinical and I check it at about 7 or 8 p.m. and I try to only limit myself to 10 minutes each time so I don't let my entire life be taken over by social media which is very difficult because sometimes you just keep scrolling and there's those cute dog videos, but,
1: <laughs> or there's a, a Twitter troll that you just, it's like a train wreck. <laughs> you have to re- read what they're posting, even though you don't agree with it. Absolutely. And more so and much more of those that. these days.
0: Oh, <laughs> we have another uh, question from Tim, who's a fresh PT. And he says, when you're trying to find a new job, are there red flags to look for, for potential causes of burnout?
1: That's a great question, and I think absolutely. Um, I really believe in um, you know trying to get as much information as you can and triangulating data. That's probably the researcher part of me, but um, so I think when you walk into a... Oh,
0: you froze. ...coworkers. Um... You froze a little oh, bit. Sorry. Can you repeat that part for me?
1: Absolutely, so when you walk into a facility, look at the faces of the people that are gonna be your coworkers. Um, I use my main clinic um, as an example. Like when you walk in there, people smile. And it's not like fake BS smiles. It's like people that are in that environment truly enjoy what they do. We're a kind of a dysfunctional family, but we're a family of (laughs) all different personalities. And we we truly enjoy um, serving our patients. Whereas I've walked into um, hospital environments or private practices where like people just look beaten. Um, you walk in and they're exasperated, they're short in their communication, they're, they just look withdrawn. Um, you can kind of tell, I think, when, you, when you're in a facility. Um, and then I think, you know, just talk to people that know, I mean, PT is a very small insular community and you can, um, you, you can gain a lot of information talking to people in your community. Like, hey, what do you know about, this hospital system or what do you know about this rehab supervisor? What do you know about this outpatient clinic? Um, and then I think one question that I'm amazed that doesn't get asked on every interview by a fresh PT, what are my productivity expectations? If you Ooh, are, I got
0: to put that one in my back pocket.
1: Yes. Um, what am I going to, what's going to be expected of me, right? Yeah. Like, that's the first question that, that students ask for the first day of class. Like I want the syllabus cause I want to know when I'm going to be tested. I want to know what assignments I have. And I'm going to put them on my iPhone calendar so I know I don't forget it.
0: Guilty. Um, yep, that's yeah. exactly how so I do. We don't
1: do that largely, and I'm saying, you know, in general, when you go into an interview and it's what you're going to be judged by for your performance. So why not just throw it out there? Um, so for example, outpatient is where I live. So if you know I was in an interview and I asked that question and someone said twenty patients a day, I would run far and fast. <laughs> um, 20 patients in an eight hour day for a fresh PT to me is ridiculous that's a hundred visits a week you that's know whereas way. if they said maybe eight to ten a day you know that's you know maybe 1.25 1.5 an hour that would be a very different perception to me as as a PT so I think that's a question that you, I would definitely ask if I was in in that position
0: that's great advice I never thought about actually asking the productivity standard as opposed to patients per day but I think that's important now that I've, I'm in a sniff right now and I didn't really know productivity because like, my CI is a therapy manager. So she's actually been teaching me how the different things go with that. And I was like, oh, you know, crap. I don't hope I don't <laughs> fail when I get to uh, when I work for myself. <laughs> Not working for free, but.
1: <laughs> no, or even just the question of like, what is what's expected of me as a new PT? Yeah. Like, what am I going to be um, graded on annually. Like, how are you going to review me in a year from now? And what are you going to, what criteria are you going to use to judge my performance? I think all of those are great questions.
0: I love that. I need to write all these down afterwards <laughs> so that I know what to ask my people in a, you know, six months when I start doing interviews. <laughs> <laughs> we have a question from Kelsey DeWitt. She says, Dr. Connors, you mentioned using mentors as a way to navigate burnout. How do you find a mentor?
1: Another great question. You guys are dropping some really cool questions. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, it really depends on, I think, um, and this is the world according to Mike, so take it for what it's worth, an N of one. Um, it depends on what you're looking for in a mentor. Like, What do you want that mentor-mentee relationship to, to look like? Like, Do you want someone that you can just um, call when you have a difficult patient and you're gonna bounce clinical ideas off of each other and, and that's gonna be the extent of your relationship? Do you want someone that you can go to with any sort of um, uh, of professional issue? Like, um, I think my boss is unethical, for example, or I think um, being asked to do too much, and I'm questioning the billing practices, or you know, or or do you want like an, an all encompassing? So, like, kind of depends on the advisor relationship you had in school. Like, how intrusive do I want that mentor to be in my profession, or how um, you know, just readily available. Um, but I think it starts with trust. Find someone that you like and trust and that you can have open communication with. Um, someone that's not gonna judge you um, when you come to them with, with situations that they're gonna be very open-minded. Um, I have a couple people that um, I serve as a mentor to and they know that I'm not gonna have a preconceived you know, uh, thought in my head when they tell me about a situation. Um, I'm gonna come with an empathetic ear and I'm going to listen to whatever it is that they want to bring to me. And I'm going to try to provide any sort of context I can. And if it's outside of my realm of expertise, then I'm going to recommend resources. And if it's and something I feel like I have some experience to be able to share, to shed some light into that, then I'll do that. But I think it starts with you identifying what you need, what you want, and then you know identifying who would be a good fit for that that you do trust.
0: I completely agree. And I actually heard something. Uh, I don't remember it's probably in the next last couple months, but they said that your mentor doesn't actually need to have to know that they're your mentor necessarily. You don't have to be like, hi, I would like to apply to be your mentee. You kind of just, uh, at least I have with my mentor mentee relationships, just kind of let it happen organically. Like I don't force myself into things at uh, conferences, but I kind of (laughs) do. There's somebody and I, anybody that's going to CSM, write down like the top five people that you want to meet at CSM and make it happen. It's scary, but you could end up getting mentors out of those people that are like the rock stars in our profession. Um, it's really cool when you just kind of put yourself out there and the kind of mentoring you can get from those things, I think, is priceless. Um, but, yeah, that um, for all of you that are watching, keep rolling in those questions. We can keep asking Mike and keeping this uh, awesome discussion going. So, Ariana wants to know, do you think clinicians that are involved in the association experience less burnout than those who aren't involved?
1: Another great question. Kind of a little question. No, it's a good question. Um, No, I I definitely do. Um, I think um, those of us that are involved in the association, I mean, we feel a sense of professional accountability. You know, I I feel like as chapter president, I'm not only accountable to myself as a professional, I'm accountable to every member, um, PT, PTA, and student. Um, and and the way in which I choose to, to behave is going to have an impact on on the public perception of what we do so mm-hmm. I think um, you make a conscious choice whether or not to be a member and to stay engaged in the um, so like in the the wherewithal of the profession like uh, n- knowing what's going on contemporaneously instead of you know finding out a year after the G codes went in for example um, <laughs> Which one happened to one of my competitors? It's pretty funny, but um, that's another story for another day. Um, <laughs> but I think just um, if you look at people that are engaged and that are active in the profession versus not, um, you have a more readily available tapped network when you're an APT member. You have people that, and you have people that are in the profession and engaged for similar reasons. So, like if you and I were to talk about why are we members, you know, our, our reasons are probably a little different, but we're both probably gonna be pretty much of the same opinion. We wanna see our profession continue to evolve. We Absolutely. wanna see you know, cool things continue to happen. So I, I, I do think that if someone's engaged, it's just a little bit more of a of a crutch in a sense for them to avoid burnout than someone that's just out there on their own.
0: I agree. And I think it goes back to what we talked about earlier with your network and you know the hashtag PT Fam. Um, I think that, you know, I've gotten really good friends out of this whole thing and you can kind of lean on them when you're like not feeling good, or you might be experiencing something you think is burnout, Um, having those friends that are similarly minded as you and can know where you're coming from, I think is really important to help yourself have as little bit of burnout as you can in this crazy journey through our careers. (laughs) Let's see, we have so many good questions. Um, Alex wants to know, what do you do to address your symptoms of burnout?
1: Another good question. So um, just like in any sort of situation, recognize the problem, first and foremost. Um, And it's got to start with you being honest with you. Like, I'm not happy where I am. This sucks. And I'm going to actually put thought into two things. One, am I the source of the problem? (laughs) And two, it's a function of my environment. Um, Because if, if... you can really be honest with yourself and say, no, it's not me. Uh, for once, I can say it's really not me. Um, <laughs> it's, it's my environment. It's something that's, that's in my, you know, because I think at times we do create unrealistic expectations for our situation. And you hold yourself to that standard. And, and when it doesn't go exactly the way that, you know, we feel it should, that's really a function of us instead of the environment. So first and foremost, you versus your environment. If it's truly your environment, um, I think be honest. But I don't like the fact, and and I would suggest to your point earlier, make a list. Um, So, write out what are the things that I love about my position? Like, top five, you know, and be honest. Like, I love my schedule. I love the patients I serve. I love um, the Starbucks I get on my way to work in the morning, whatever it is. And then the things that you don't like about your situation. So, I dislike uh, extensive documentation demands, I dislike my salary. I dislike my coworkers, whatever that, that is. And, and then can I change those things I don't like? I mean, is it, is it within my power or in my locus of influence to change that situation? And if it is, then I would get to work whatever you need to do and whatever resources to change that situation early on. If it's not, recognize that it's okay to cut bait and walk away. Um, yeah. You know, if you're looking at a 30 plus year career in physical therapy, it is way too long of a time to be miserable in a position. So I think if you get to that point, you need to really look, you know, analyze your situation. You can either improve upon it and do it or it's time for a change.
0: Yeah, I I completely agree with that. And Sarah actually has a Another really good question that goes way right along with this. She says, would you ever recommend that PTs switch settings when they are experiencing burnout early on? And how long should someone stay in a setting to see if it's actually burnout or not?
1: Really good question. So I'll just use my own experience. Um, what Jillian referenced before is I was an inpatient therapist. My first position, I lasted 366 days. <laughs> and I had a great experience. I learned a lot. Um, just got to the end of, of what I could um, what I wanted to uh, tolerate on a day- to-day basis um, for a lot of reasons and, and decided it was time for a switch so I don't know that there's a definite time frame I can't say like oh give it you know five week a day um, I think if you're in a situation that makes you unhappy and I mean like you know um, especially when you're starting to develop we talked a little bit earlier, you know, possible signs of like anxiety, depression, you just start to really question why you're doing this. Um, It starts to impact just your overall physical and mental well-being. Um, That's a bad place to get to. So I think when you start to recognize those signs, again, go back to the analysis, like I can do something about it and I'm going to and do it or this just isn't for me and it's time to move in a different direction. Um, I can say as a hiring manager, I would never – judge someone because they left a situation that wasn't ideal for them and I would like to think that most of our colleagues are like that like if you took a job that you thought would be really cool say I wanted to do peds and I did peds and I'm like oh my goodness this is peds and I didn't know what I was getting myself into and you get like a month into it you're like I really want to do neuro rehab or I really want to do I mean I think that's a good learning experience and the the best time in your life to have those learning experiences is as a fresh PT in my opinion
0: That's great. You know, you scared me a little bit at first because when you said you lasted 366 days, I really want to do inpatient neuro. (laughs) So I'm really hoping that I don't get burnt out after a year. But um, (laughs) if I do, I know I'll just you know, find something else, I guess, that it doesn't make me feel burnt out. (laughs) So Lindsay says, I've heard um, I've heard people have taken off days and called it mental health day. Due to feeling overwhelmed, do you think this is a new strategy used by people who are burnt out?
1: I absolutely do. And I think that um, it, it's largely an impact of you've just allowed that um, confluence of circumstances to become overwhelming, right? Like, I don't know when mental health they got involved. Um, I, I've heard it before and, and I get it. I mean, like, sometimes you just need to step away. It's like you, you get in an argument with a friend, a spouse, you know, whatever. Like it's it's best if we just walk away, everybody kind of calms down sees perspectives, come back together and we're good. Um, but I, I think that that's probably a sign that you've let it go too long. Like you did ignite those signs early on and then you get to a point where you're just like, it, I don't I, I just, I can't. And when you get to that place, I don't care how much you know, of a of upheaval it would be in life, it's time to change. Yeah. Um, because I feel like you're at a crossroads where you're now making a decision for your mental, emotional, psychological well-being moving forward as a professional. And it, it has a that decision has a significant downstream effect on you as an individual moving forward.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. And I have a, a random question that just popped in my head because I know you start out inpatient and then went to outpatient. And at some point you were an educator, right? Yep. What kind of made your transition to go from clinician to uh, professor and now you're a director, I think?
1: Yeah, back in outpatient. So I, I started an inpatient, went to outpatient, um, stayed there for about two years, um, went into running a, a national home care um, orthopedic division. So I've always kind of stayed in orthopedics, did that for about a year and a half, uh, came back to outpatient, um, really just wanted to do more, learn more, that kind of stuff. So got into um, becoming an academic, um, stayed there for a little bit, about six years, and then missed the full-time clinical presence. So now I like always continue to kind of reinvent myself professionally. Um, so now I still see patients about five, 10 hours a week, but my main job now is to um, make our people successful. And so if working with um, fresh PTs, new professionals, um, formal and informal mentoring, clinical development, um, Developing like clinical excellence pathways, um, designed it at, at enhancing patient care. So, like, different kind of focus than just, you know, seeing patients on the front lines. But um, every experience that you have, <clears throat> you should be able to walk away from, like I said, and say, either, you know, I want to take that and make that something that'll help me in the future, or you're going to leave there and be like, I never want to experience that again. Then people are crazy and get them the hell away from me.
0: <laughs> hey, either way, you learn something from every situation. I think
1: every, they're good. Everything or bad. is a learning opportunity.
0: I completely agree. And Erica Perrazzo, she says, if we see others, including peers, coworkers and patients that we suspect are beginning to experience burnout, what can we do to help them or how can we help them?
1: That's a really good question. Um, So this is where I think you gotta look beyond you. Um, And I know that's, you know, sometimes challenging in a tough situation, but um, I think we do our patients a disservice by not taking care of each other. Um, You work in a department, you work for a clinic, um, that's a colleague. um, And whatever level of experience they are. So I recently had an interaction with a clinician that she probably has about 25 years of experience, so about 10 years more than me, she's an OT. But you could just tell, like her her mood was changing, demeanor was changing, uh, just and not you know negative, but you could just Mm -hmm. you know kind of tell that the person that you knew is not the person that you see. And so the two of us decided we were going to take it upon ourselves and just say, hey, what's going on? Well, some life circumstances we're we're making things challenging, and and we're kind of making things creating other issues, other places, And, and and sometimes it's not about work, sometimes it's about life, and just you know, giving your colleague an outlet sometimes just not that you're going to be there, you know, pull up a couch and let's lay down and talk about this. But, you know, as as the psychologist will shrink, but, you know, just that, that you're recognizing not only your own self-care, but reinforcing the, the necessary self-care that a colleague needs to do to be able to maintain their level of empathy in a day-to-day interaction with patients.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's really important. Um, I think in our profession, we naturally want to help people, not just our, uh, patients but also each other i don't necessarily think this is like the most competitive career it's not like we're in banking i don't know anything about banking so that's a random example but um or like you're it's like cutthroat or like when you're in law school we actually want to help each other so i think that's really important to reach out and kind of support our fellow students i know we go through burnout in school and then you're going to experience it again when we get out in the clinic or wherever we go um Let's see. Alex says, when you are experiencing burnout, do you have any recommendations for our day-to-day management of the symptoms? Maybe aside from talking to your uh, employer experience, we talked about that, but how to deal with it yourself, maybe.
1: Okay. So I think just like any other healthy coping behaviors um, or you know stress management, um, you're going to do things that make you feel better about you or the situation. So maybe it's You work a seven to five day and instead of just using the time over lunch to catch up on documentation, you're like, I need to physically get out of the clinical environment. I need to leave. I need to be by myself. I need to go do something that that makes me happy to recharge to be able to come back in the second part of that day. Mm -hmm. Um, So maybe that's working out. Maybe it's just something, you know, go to smoothie factory. Just something that will, you know, get a Starbucks um, something that will detract you. I think it's also healthy to leave work. Um, and and I mean, so if you're in a clinical environment, whatever the environment, you know, 40 plus hours a week, and then you're, you're just always there. You never leave. You never just, even if it's to go run an errand or something. So I think it's healthy to, to get out of work when you have the opportunity to do so. I'm not saying don't ever eat lunch with your, 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 co-workers or anything but when you're getting to that point where you're like I I really feel like I need some you know me time um, Mm -hmm. take the time and don't wait like take the time to focus on you so that you can then turn around and focus on your patients
0: I like that a lot I know something we kind of talked about before we started this was kind of like financial side of why maybe people you know we have to get our doctorate now for those of us that are PT students um, how that financial burden of all of our debt kind of weighs in on burnout.
1: Yeah, it's like we said, um, I feel for y'all. I graduated in 03 with about $50,000 in, um, in student loan debt, um, you know, fast forward 15 years and inflation, and for y'all it's probably close to like 100, 120. Um, and that's all the most recent data, average PT student, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a lot higher. It's, it's probably creeping yeah. towards like 120. Um, I think the best thing, honestly, that you can do as a fresh PT is make a a honest, realistic budget, like what goes in, what goes out, um, and realize. Like, I talk to a lot of fresh PTs that actually and make me pretty enthused about the profession because they have like a five year plan. And in fact, I have a PT that paid off a hundred thousand dollars in student loans with his wife in three years. And that's
0: like, incredible.
1: <laughs> yeah, and and like they made. it. And I asked them, like, man, what are you thinking? Like, it's like we just want it. Out of our life, and so they live like students, even though they were, you know, earning a paycheck for three years, and every little bit that they had, you know, how what did they do to celebrate when they paid it off? They went to Italy for two weeks, um, Ooh, which is a good goal, that's right?
0: A good idea.
1: <laughs> so set a realistic goal, set a realistic budget. You know, figure out what you want to do to manage that. Because let's face it, debt, debt, you're going to have it the rest of your life. Um, you can choose to mitigate how much debt you go into, not with student loans, but in life. So, you know, maybe you delay, you know, some of the normal things that happen, like, oh, I have to buy a house right away. Well, maybe focus on, you know, marginalizing some of this debt. I think the other thing that I'm seeing more of our colleagues doing is trying to do as much as they can work-wise. So, like, I met a fresh Texas PT that Mm -hmm. um, graduated back in May, and it's working, like, 60 hours a week. You will burn out. Like, Oh God, like you can't work seven days a week. You, you you can't maintain that. Um, if you're desperate and you have to, you figure it out, but, um, being new and like just it, the grind gets to you. you, you don't get your time. You, so I get the whole balancing, yeah. you know, work life, but set a realistic budget, set realistic goals for how you want to manage that. And then just don't deviate. Like that's my plan. That's what I'm going to do. And look back, celebrate like with a goal a week trip to Italy, whatever, but, um, that's, yeah, I like that. Treat myself to a yoga class. Yeah. Just anything. Yeah, that's what I
0: just thought too. Uh, I need to start doing more yoga, I think.
1: Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yoga, Pilates, I think we
0: kind of, we kind of touched on this, but I think there's a little bit more to it. Ron asked, do you think student debt contributes to burnout like more often than not?
1: Absolutely. Um, I think on two, uh, levels. One, um, you feel the burn, right? You feel the the, the <laughs> loan payment um, when your um, loan carrier sends you an, uh, an email, it used to be a letter, um, now I'm really showing my age. Uh, when you get that email from your student loan carrier that tells you what your payments are gonna be per month, I mean, I think that's a stressor, right? Um, how can you not see, you know, whatever it is, even if it's a $1,000 a month, that's, if you, for easy numbers, if you earned 60 grand your first year out of school, and you had $1,000 loan payments, that's a fifth of your salary. Um, that would stress yeah. me out. <laughs> you know that means 5,000 dollars a month is, is what you're being paid before taxes. Now 4,000 dollars of that is what you need to live on after taxes. Um, yeah. Which means and then you're, a
0: thousand of it's going to student loans, and then
1: <laughs> yeah, So it becomes real. Um, so I think that, and I think that is now driving the mindset that I have to graduate and earn more. Even though the clinical environment doesn't necessarily A agree with that and not agree. They agree that you know PT should earn more, but the, the current situation from a payment perspective for our services doesn't lend itself to paying new grads $100,000 yeah. um, dollars. Dang it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, I'll be honest, when I f- first started, I took my first job in May of 2003 and I was making 44, I think and I just hired a PT within the last three months in the low 70s. Um, so, <laughs> you know, but but here's the thing. So when you've been around long enough, are we earning more as professionals? Because my entry level degree was a master's degree. and I think total, you know, $50,000 in debt. Now you're a DPT who's in, say you make 70, but you're $120,000 in debt. I don't think we're making more. I think it's more expensive to live so I yeah. think that's the other part that stresses people out. They graduate, they get into their clinical environment and they see their first paycheck and they're depressed. Because okay. they're like, like, you know, I I didn't realize that taxes and insurance and all that stuff. So I think that's the other thing to become educated about and then kind of back up into that budgeting process um, and realize that as a fresh PT, you're coming into the profession, there's an investment that a company is going to make in you. Um and there's a cost to that investment um, from a training and development perspective. So um you know, being realistic about earning potential too is also knowing what the starting salaries are. Um, so you don't set yourself up for disappointment or failure when you realize that you probably aren't going to make a hundred grand that first year. You might your second year, or you <laughs> might work your ass off and you may earn it, which would be awesome, right? That first year. Um, but a lot of those positions just and the other thing to keep in mind, and this is just kind of unrelated. If someone's going to pay you a lot of money. It's going to be, in my opinion, for two reasons. One, it's going to be somewhere that's geographically not desirable. So like you might make $100,000 to work in Nome, Alaska or Equal Pass, Texas. That's right on the border. Or you're going to be asked to do something that you know you probably either shouldn't be doing or you're going to be ethically compromised.
0: Yeah, I think it's I think it's important to weigh is not necessarily always taking the job. that's going to pay you the most because I know like I know PT Mills may offer more money, but you're going to be seeing 20, 30 patients a day. Um, whereas you can be paid less and actually get to experience like giving your patients good quality care and being proud of what you're doing. Um, I think personally that that's worth a pay cut because um, I feel like burnout is definitely going to happen if you're making, you know, $100,000, but you're seeing 30 patients a day. Um, let's see. Ooh, Angelica Vasquez, I hope I said your name right, uh, says any advice for new PTAs? Is burnout different for them?
1: Great question. So I'm a PT, so I can only speak to the, PT experience, but I've worked with a lot of great PTA colleagues. I think it's a professional issue. It's not a PT versus PTA. Um, the issues that um, I experience as a PT are no different than you would experience as a PTA, Angelica. Um, I think if, if you really peel back the layers of the onion enough, um, burnout is burnout, and it, it affects you know people at all levels of the career, all environments. PT versus PTA. Um, if you're experiencing. Um, overload, empathy fatigue, um, just, you know, feelings of, like, hopelessness, despair. Um, Those are human emotions, um, and that's a human, you know, experience. So regardless of male, female, PT, PTA, um, fresh PT, 30-year experienced uh, professional, um, burnout impacts us and affects us in different ways, but burnout burnout.
0: Absolutely. Um, Ron wants to know, kind of going right into it, all things considered, I've heard that PTs are making the same as they were when PT was just a certificate. As a mid-career, do you think burnout is more common than it was when you first started?
1: Really good question. Um, I do. I think um, the factors that you all face entering the profession, it, there's more of a, of an uphill, I can't think of a better analogy right now. I'm sorry. It's late on Sunday. but um, <laughs> More of an uphill battle. Um, you're starting... Um, you know, the little bit more dead on your backs so as you, you walk uphill. Um, and I think that definitely has an impact. Um, we don't keep, I say we, um, ATA, TPTA, as a profession, we don't keep good data on washout rates of the profession. Um, yeah. you know, so those colleagues that say two years into this, I'm done with this crap, screw this. I'm going to go be a pharma rep or a, you know, medical device rep that or something, or yeah. you know, I'm going to go, be a missionary or work at Starbucks or whatever, whatever someone chooses to do and they leave our profession. Uh, we don't track that really well and we don't track the people that come and go out of our profession. Yeah. Um, so I think that's a factor. I don't think that, I think we are making more to your point, Ron. I think we have more opportunities. Um, I will tell you, cash based practice was, um, not even a something that people talked about when I first graduated and niche practices were, were not, um, were not common at all. And that's probably the two areas in the last 15 years I've seen um, entrepreneurial people. So I, I'm just one of those people that believe you create your opportunities. Um, you create um, your situations largely for, for you and your circumstances. And you have a, an impact on that. You can choose whether or not you're going to go to work in an environment. You can choose whether or not, you know, you want to put up with certain non-negotiables for you. And then I think the last thing I would say to that is just, you know, Make sure that you're you're staying true to you, you know that you, you're you feel good about you on a day to day basis when, when you go to work.
0: I completely agree that's it's good to hear that you know we still have grown as a profession like we knew we have, but it's it's nice to hear you've been in the profession for six or fifteen years and we have grown where we have more entrepreneurial and niche practice things, which is super exciting to me so. Uh, we have less, we've got eight minutes left, so if you have your questions you are bring to ask Mike, go ahead and submit them now so we can get them in before the chat is over. Uh, Sarah has another question. She says, do you think burnout is different for those who open up their own practice, especially if it's cash-based, since dealing with health insurance today is such a pain? I agree, I hate insurance.
1: <laughs> I agree that uh, I hate insurance as well, but it's an unnecessary <laughs> evil. Um, I do think there's stress in private practice. Um, you know, there's there's two types of colleagues. There's the colleagues that can um, accept and mitigate risk, um, and that are willing to to take that on. And then there's the types that that just never will want that to be something they want to entertain. Um, so I think there's there's more stress, but I think there's more upside. Um, you know, when you're in a cash-based practice, you decide what your income is going to be. So I can give you an example. I have a friend in Colorado who's been gradually building his cash-based practice for the over the course of maybe the last two years, and he's up to seeing, you know, a good volume right now, and it's going to make him a really, really good living. Now, he can decide as the owner, like, I want to see one more patient visit a week, and this is what that'll translate into from a revenue perspective, and, you know, this is what it'll do to my my life, or, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm okay with this level, and I've set that, and and that's where I'm going to maintain my work-life balance. Um, You know, so I think Yes, there's more stress in that, that instance or, or potentially maybe a little bit of a higher rate of burnout, but um, I think the, the entrepreneurial-minded person is gonna take that burnout or that those feelings and just try to reinvest them in that effort to make it as successful as possible.
0: Yeah, I, I, think, I completely agree. I feel like if you're making your own, you can reinvent it enough times to where it should be satisfying work for you where you can keep your passion going we have a couple more questions to fit in. Uh, Beth Horn says, do you feel like if we were better reimbursed for our services, burnout would decrease? Because we would be required to see so many patients and meet crazy productivity requirements.
1: Yes, ma'am. <laughs> I do, <laughs> I think um, I think if we were paid, yeah, this is like mic drop and walk away. Um, if we were paid better for our services, um, I absolutely uh, would think burnout would be less. Um, we're in an unfortunate circumstance in a lot of practices where you, you do. I mean, it's unfortunate. It's it's partially volume-based instead of value-based. I think that's a backwards equation. Um, so I, I think that's something that we're going to have to deal with as a profession as we continue to move forward. I don't think that's an individual clinician. But um, I, I do think if we were paid better, um, you yeah, know, I think that will also translate into better salaries, you know. I don't know if higher paid people have less burnout. I don't know that. That sounds like another good research study, but, um, I do, do know that, um, yeah, there'd be a better upside for, for a lot of people.
0: How do you think that we can try to get our reimbursement higher?
1: Divine intervention. No, um, (laughs) really? (laughs) Um, no, I think lobbying advocacy, you know, you mentioned that earlier. I think, um, more of our colleagues, like really getting involved, showing up when we need to show up, you know, um, you all saw all the information about the therapy cap. So I went into college, pains me to say this, in 1997. Um, so during the therapy cap, and so you're we like, oh, I was in grade school. Um, the therapy cap was just <laughs> passed, and uh, yeah, I, it's okay. I'll be 40 this year, I, I can handle it. Um, the therapy cap was just <laughs> passed um, then, and it's 21 years later, and it's repealed. So, but it happened because people stayed involved and engaged. So I think that's the biggest Absolutely. thing we need to encourage our colleagues, like be advocates for, for you, for your profession, for your patients. And when the opportunity is there to get something done, r- respond to the call.
0: 100%. I'm going to use a little segue. Um, the National Advocacy Dinners, if you, you want to host one or you want to know more information, Lindsay is our SBT delegate and she is Everything Advocacy. Um, she's going to drop a link to get more information for that. And at CSM, we'd love to connect with you and get to know you guys and what kind of advocacy stuff you guys would like to do and how to host a national advocacy dinner. Um, and last but not least, I'm going to have Alex. He says, do you have any recommended resources for us? Uh.
1: Great question. Um, so I, in my blog, I put a couple of um, just points. I'm not aware of, of any good resources, um, and I can try to get back to Jillian here, and I'll commit to trying to come up with a few. Um, I think a lot of it would be mental health resources. Um, there's yeah. some really great um, data out there about um, provider mental health, um, and I think a lot of times we, we hear that and we're like, I'm not anxious, I'm not depressed, I'm not this, I'm not that. It's not about that. It's about recognizing you know, who you are as a provider and as a professional and making sure that the machine is always, you know, well cared for. So that way the output is always excellent. Um, So whatever resources that are out there, um, you know, in terms of of addressing uh, clinician mental health, addressing clinician um, health in general, health and wellness. Um, And then I will say um, getting involved in some sort of outlet that, as I alluded to before, that that's healthy for you. So, um, you know, you guys mentioned yoga, pilates, um, boot camps, whatever it is that, like, exercise is good. We know that movement is good, and you're practicing what you're preaching. Um, and I think that that's something that's always kind of the first to go um, in our busy routines. And I think that's something, like I said before, you, you have to protect. Um, so find what it is that, that really. You know, kind of helps keep you on the level, and um, and make sure that that stays part of your routine, so that you stay in the best shape for your patients.
0: Absolutely, I agree one hundred percent. So we're reaching the end of our time. So I'm going to make a couple announcements. But Mike, thank you so much for joining us tonight. I think this has been, I know, good for me at least. I hope everybody else really enjoyed, and I learned a lot. Uh, if you're on Twitter or on Facebook, I would love if you guys would comment or tweet. Um, You know, after this exchange chat, navigate and burnout, I'm going to blank. So maybe that's put that sticky note on your mirror, you know, trying to motivate yourself every day, coming up with your big list of why you're in this uh, profession or anything like that. And then uh, what did you find most valuable about tonight? Um, And what more what information do you still need more on? Uh, We would love to hear from you guys and know how you liked our chat or what we need to do better on. And as a few announcements, CSM is 10 days away. I said that already, but I'm really jacked and so excited to go to New Orleans. <laughs> Never been before. Um, and we'll be in the student neighborhood, me and the rest of the board of directors, uh, any unopposed time. And we're going to do three raffles for NSC tickets. So you can have free registration to NSC, which will be in Providence, Rhode Island, by the way, which is going to be awesome. and. We're going to give two of those away at our general membership meeting, which is going to be Friday of CSM from 630 to 830 p.m. in the Hilton in room chart A. And then we're going to give the last one away on Saturday at about 3 p.m. at our booth. And then the next volunteers for the next conference and the House of Delegates Ushers applications are now open. So if you want to get a free registration to next, that's a really good way to do it. So I highly recommend that. Um, it's a great way to meet people and uh, maybe start getting involved. And then if you want to do a national advocacy dinner, either talk to Lindsay, McC- or I'm just going to call her Lindsay Mac because I love you, but I can never pronounce your last name, and Allie Beck. And with that, thanks for joining us, guys. Mike, do you have anything last words of wisdom for us?
1: Thank you for the opportunity, and uh, you know, just stay engaged, stay energized. Hopefully what you heard from me is um, I'm really passionate about a profession, and I've continued to... Figure out ways to stay energized Um, I'm excited about work tomorrow um, as I am every day when I get up so um, find that and um, and don't let it die thanks again
0: of course and with that we will see you guys in March we're gonna be March 25th at 7 p.m. I'm gonna be talking to Amy Smith who's a PTA about being a woman leader and becoming a leader in the profession as a PTA and just how becoming a leader profession kind of goes we'll see you guys next month